Let's end the political trilogy that we have ventured on with a bang. Let's end it with the one and only The Politics Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our final episode that is pledged to the politics in this season. So our team here at What Do We Have Here decided that it's best to end this great trilogy with a blast. But before we get into our final episode, make sure you follow our official account on Instagram, WDWHH16, and share with your friends and family. And make sure to support the podcast. Now, with all that out of the way, let's begin. So uh, with us here today is the host, Paul, from The Politics Show. Uh, So Paul, tell us a little bit about yourself. How's it going, everyone? My name is Paul Capuzzo. I am the host of The Politics Show, as Daniel just said. Uh, And as host of the show, every week I uh, host a new episode covering whatever uh, the the news of the week is. Last week was Medicare for All. This coming Monday is the Black Lives Matter movement. Every Friday I conduct an interview with an influential political figure, a congressional candidate, a local candidate, state candidate, or whatever it may be, and we just talk about whatever the issue may be. Yeah, it's really cool. I've, I've watched his show and I do su- suggest you all do the same. So uh, with that being said, today we will be talking about who is most likely to win the 2020 uh, election, uh, Donald Trump, who is our current president, or former, former Vice President Biden, who is believed to be the um, Democratic presidential nominee. So um, let's uh, first look at our current president, uh, Donald Trump. So Paul, how do you think he's been doing so far before the virus and the riots, all, all that started, how do you think he was doing up until this point? So, are you, are you just want, I just want to clarify, you're talking in terms of his greater presidency as a whole? Yes, exactly. And, and you know, what, what, he, what he has done to, you know, support America in, in a sense, what, what well, he has done for America. Well, right there, I have to disagree with the notion that he supported America. Um, mm-hmm. I don't believe him to be the worst president we ever had. I believe that title is strongly uh, relegated to uh, President George W. Bush, uh, who led us into Iraq and things like that. But but that legacy of Iraq, that legacy of the Obama administration, the worst parts of the Obama administration, the worst parts of the Bush administration, have also been carried out by the Trump administration. Um, You know, Trump has not been a terrible, terrible president in the sense that he's done nothing good for this country. Uh, there are a variety of different things that he has done that are good. Uh, but for instance, let's talk about uh, two of his big accomplishments. Let's talk about military expansion, uh, which is something he loves to talk about. And let's look, uh, let's, let's look at three, actually. Military expansion, unemployment numbers, and um, tax policy. So let's actually start with tax policy. So it was within the 2017 tax law that 83% of the benefits of that law went to the top 1% of Americans. And I believe that we generally have to dispel this notion, this myth, that the the, the 1% are, are the job creators. They, yes, they, they do create jobs, but they're not the wealth creators. The wealth creators are the actual workers who received barely any of the benefits of this tax policy and who actually in the long run after his 10-year sunset period are going to be utterly hurt by this tax policy. But then we also take a look, as I said, at military policy and, and the expansion of military imperialism of the U.S. foreign policy. And we take a look at his actions and, and things like uh, removing troops from uh, the the uh, Syria region uh, near bordering Turkey. 
we, we take a look at his expansion of foreign policy in Middle Eastern conflicts like in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, these are wars that he campaigned on getting out of. Uh, he said that the people that went in there are the dumbest people in the room. And he vowed on getting us out of there. And he got, he's expanded our number of troops in those regions. And I also want to take a look at these unemployment numbers. Um, unemployment today, yes, uh, he has lowered the unemployment rate, but that's because multiple, that's because people are working two, three jobs. These aren't well-paying jobs. Uh, it, what's it called? Um, uh, raises have been stagnant since 1989. Um, so it's not this great flourishing economy that everyone makes it out to be. The stock market's not indicative of how the average American is doing. All right. So he, here's what I uh, have to say, you know, as a devil's advocate, I guess you can call it. Um, one thing that you did bring up that uh, pointed out was uh, w when you talked about uh, ta taking troops out of Syria and then putting uh, troops into Af Afghanistan. Now, here's my question uh, to you. When, uh, when he was taking uh, troops out of Syria, bordering Turkey, I think you're referring to when Turkey uh, decided to invade that certain part, right? So my question is, and this is, you know, uh, personally just my question, it's just a overall consensus. Uh, when, when, if, if he was to stay, if he left his troops, wouldn't you say that the troops that were left there are technically still in those forts and camps, those outposts? So couldn't the troops still just go around them? So what was the point? How would it be better, basically, if we left the troops in Syria? Well, because what we ultimately wound up doing is we wound up, we, we wound up giving our, our consensus. Our, we had a hegemony in, the, in, in that region for, for a good reason. I would argue right. that the Syrian civil war is the one place in the Middle East where we actually should be stationed. And okay. when, when we talk about leaving that region in a general whole, we're forfeiting that up to the Russian government. We're, we're putting our, we're, we're forfeiting it up to the Saudi Arabian government. We're forfeiting that up to the Turkish government. And these are all authoritarian strongmen regimes. Um, and we're supposed to be these leaders of freedom right. and democracy when in reality we're hurting these people of, uh, of Syria and, and, uh, and the Kurds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that, that does make sense. I, I, I understand where you come from, but and then I suppose the second the question was when I brought uh, he put troops into Afghanistan. Now he he did um, say that uh, he was going to pull troops out of Afghanistan, and yet you know as you said, and this is true, he put more troops in there. Now now do you think that this is harmful? And the reason why I ask that is of course you know troops want to go home definitely, but do you believe? I mean in the end he killed the leader of ISIS, which has been something that was going through the Obama administration through the Trump administration. So overall, do you think that it was a smart move to put more troops into Afghanistan? And well, if we look at the map today, ISIS presence is barely there. Or do you think it was less ideal for the American quote unquote dream? So I'm, I'm going to answer this by giving a brief history, if that's all right. Yeah, yeah, please, please go, um, go right ahead. You know, with, with the Bush administration, with our intent to originally enter uh, Middle Eastern conflicts of Iraq and Afghanistan, the goal was to get Saddam Hussein and the goal was to get those who, and Osama bin Laden, and those who perpetrated uh, the horrible, terrible disaster of 9-11. But the issue with that was once we found out that, uh, you know, Saddam, we ultimately wound up going for Saddam. Now, Saddam had nothing really to do with it. 
What he had to do with it was he's a bad guy. So the goal was to get the perpetrator of 9-11, then to get this bad man who had nothing necessarily to do with it. Maybe he had chemical weapons, maybe he had biological weapons of mass warfare, WMDs, which he wound up not having. So we go into these countries, we find out they don't have weapons of mass destruction, and yet we continue our rampage in these countries despite them not having it. You know, the goalpost keeps on getting moved and moved because at the end of the day, we're an imperialist uh, foreign policy machine. We make mm -hmm. our, we have a, uh, a crisis in the country of a, uh, a military, uh, military industrial complex where we make so much incredible amounts of money uh, off of military conflicts, ones that bring death and destruction to foreign nations, not our own, and, and then blame these people of uh, brown people of color. Um, and we blame them for not being human. We blame them as being subhuman in some instance because they don't subscribe to the same human nature that is written in our declaration as in life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. They don't subscribe to that. They just subscribe to a different form of human nature. Um, so we, we declare them as less human, uh, subhuman, and therefore choose to attack them. So when President Trump goes ahead and expands our uh, imperialist foreign policy into other nations, he's furthering this, this idea of moving the goalpost. You know, this allows future administrations to go ahead and say, okay, so they were bad people. So we're just going to go ahead and attack anyone who's a bad people. So that's what we're currently seeing right now with Maduro in Venezuela. He's a bad person. Now, has he attacked the United States? No, but he's a bad person. So that gives us the authority to then go in and attack him. So it's a slippery slope at the end of the day. And I understand that the, the leader of ISIS was killed, but if, I may be wrong on this, but perhaps he wasn't killed via actual on-ground troops, but perhaps a drone strike. Um, was, um, if I might... If I'm not mistaken, wasn't he um, that the general was killed by the drone strike and the leader of ISIS was killed by troops or um, uh, am I mistaken? Well, I know uh, General Soleimani of Iran. He, that was the, that was the right. general of Iran. I know that he was yes. killed by a drone strike on January 3rd. Um, that in of itself, if I can just make a quick comment on that, what was, yeah, yeah, yeah. What was brutally, Definitely. we don't have a declaration of war with Iran. Uh -huh. And when he goes ahead and he might be the worst person in the world, right? He might yeah. be uh, the, the new, the upcoming of Hitler, right? He might be <laughs> yeah, the absolute yeah. worst person in the world. Now, very well may not be, right? In fact, he actually helped yeah. defeat ISIS in the region. So we know he's not that. But let's okay. say in this hypothetical scenario, he was. He did not attack U.S. land. He never imposed a threat to the actual homeland of the United States. In fact, he helped us defeat a common enemy, being ISIS. In fact, in the very speech that he was killed doing, he was celebrating the the, the weakening of ISIS. Right. So that move in of itself was an unconstitutional, first of all, because we don't have a declaration of war. And second of all, it, okay. it went against global policy. It went against international law. So that's my stance on that as well. Most of okay. the decisions made foreign policy-wise by the U.S. go against international law. Okay, that makes sense. And um, I think, you know, the, this if we can transition from uh, terrorist organizations, uh, recently Donald Trump... That was a uh, good transition. The anti-fascist group. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, into a terrorist group in the United States. Now, we've never had a terrorist group in the United States. Uh, so 
do you agree that you know this was a good choice and do you think he went too far and one uh question that i'd like to add to that is uh, since this is already a terrorist group how, how do you think the united states is going to uh, deal with it so I, I first want to go ahead and, and make comment on, on the the notion that antifa is a terrorist group um it's not in my view it's not and the reason i say that is it can commit terrorist actions. The people belonging to this quote-unquote group uh, can commit terrorist actions. However, according to the law that allows them to classify terrorist organizations, they may not be persistent or present in the United States. They must be foreign groups. Mm-hmm. So I understand that's a technicality. Let's say technicality yeah. doesn't exist. Antifa is by no by no means a well-connected organization. There are a bunch of scattered people around the country who aren't anti-fascists, but rather anarchists. And, you know, Antifa has been plagued as, as the, the, wrong, the biggest wrong of these BLM movements. When in fact, you go to Min, uh, Minneapolis, for example, 40% of the arrests made in one of the riots belonged to white supremacist groups. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Perhaps Antifa, while they may be a terrible people and they might want to abolish government as it is because they are an anarchist body, first of all, they aren't uh, a body. And second of all, perhaps they're being overblamed for stuff being committed by other groups such as white supremacists. Okay. So here's a viewpoint that is commonly brought up by Republicans and independent um, moderates. So my viewpoint is, especially I, I personally do agree with this, but uh, Antifa, in my in my mind, um, would be considered a terrorist group, and the reason why is when you think of a terrorist, uh, you know they terrorize people. You know, in cases of Antifa, they uh, burn buildings, and you know, l- like you said, there are instances when white supremacist groups do come in and they burn the buildings and they blame it on Antifa, and it's not actually them. But there are instances when Antifa does, you know, terrorize the nation. So in that case uh, or sense. Um, Basically, my question is, in that viewpoint, how would you defend that Antifa isn't, uh, you know, a terrorist group, not not including the technicality, of course? So, as I said, like, ignoring the technicality, while Antifa does commit terrorist actions, and I I do condemn those, the the looting, the rioting, and everything of that nature, I, I look at it and I say, well, there's no central body. You look at an organization like ISIS, for instance, right? A right. well-known terrorist organization. They have a central leader. Mm-hmm. They have that leader who is able to uh, reign command over all the terrorist acts and stuff like that. This seemingly does not. And you look at the FBI report that recently came out and from what they, from what I briefly read some of it, I didn't read the whole thing yet, and that's for my Monday right. show, as I said earlier. Um, they don't necessarily know for a fact that Antifa is behind all of these looting and riot. Sure, they might be behind some, but you have President Donald Trump who actually removed, I believe, the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, from the domestic terrorist list. Okay, yeah, that, I mean that that is one thing that I, I actually do agree with you that. Uh, removing the KKK, which is a very racist group that, you know, it should should be considered terrorists and on all fronts. And I, I do agree with that. And it was not a smart decision to remove them from uh, the terrorist group, uh, d- domestic terrorists. 
but since we are on the topic of rioting and everything else, another transition, how do you believe that Donald Trump is handling the riots today in, well, what started Minneapolis, but now uh, spread throughout the entire country? Um, not well. Um, <laughs> okay. So, to, simply put. To say the least. Uh, but no, I'm going to get into that. Yeah. Um, I, I look at the riots that are, are generally occurring around these countries, and I just want to get into why I believe these riots are even happening very quickly, because I, yeah, I believe yeah, it's more than the death of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. um, it's angst. People have been locked up for months in their house. People lost their jobs. The unemployment rate is the highest it's ever been in U.S. history. People are, have economic angst. People are tired of the system that put us into the spot we're currently in. And when you have the president go ahead and do a photo op of him holding a Bible in front of a church and gassing protesters while this is happening, shooting rubber bullets at protesters while this is happening, I look at that and think wow, this really goes to show the, the, the strongman angle of, of this presidency. Now, as I, as I mentioned, Donald Trump hasn't done everything terrible throughout his presidency. I'm not one of those people to, to just dismiss the president based on who he is as a person because he's a loathsome person. But I look at it and I, I review things policy by policy, and I will recognize that some of his policies are for the betterment of the country. But <laughs> I, I look at what's happening in his response to this. When, when he says, gas the rioters, when he says, uh, shoot them with the rubber bullets, when he says that cops should call in the National Guard and, and the military to, to deal with these threats, I look at it and said, and let me just give like a really a good example from today even. Yeah. Today, okay. the United States in some cities has repealed habeas corpus. For those of you that don't know, habeas corpus is a writ in the Constitution that allows all cases, mandates that all cases must be heard before a judge, that your, your case, it, it, it must be heard. Uh, if not, that would be an unconstitutional offense. Well, governors and presidents under a, a martial law have the ability to uh, withstrain with uh, that ability of habeas corpus, so you no longer have to hear before a judge. So if you're arrested, you can be held indefinitely without ha having your case be heard. Um, that is not a, a symbol of a, of a liberal democracy. That is the symbol of an authoritarian government, a, a government that says, your rights, we don't care about them. We are going to do what is best for a country dismissing the rights of the man. I guess my uh, opposition to that would be as, you know, a uh, devil's advocate would be that when you brought out the National Guard and th those groups, uh, the military and all of that, how Trump was saying that if you're, um, I, I believe he said, uh, when the sh uh, looting starts, the shooting starts on his Twitter post. Uh, so my, my, my question to you would be then, don't you believe it's somewhat actually smart for governors to call in the National Guard? Because as of right now, uh, protesters who are, of course, innocent uh, are protesting. But then you have these massive amounts of uh, rioters and people who loot and burn buildings who e even there's footage of a uh, CNN uh, center that is being destroyed and cops were literally stuck in the corner. So they couldn't really do much. So do you think it was, you know, smart to call in the National Guard to keep things quieted down? Or, or do you think that, uh, you know, it's 
it's it's unjust and it should work itself out. Well, I I, I believe there. So it's a tricky question because I I do understand yeah. the the perspective of you know, the National Guard must be sent in. These are unjust riots. But at the same time, we also have to, again, look into the system that allowed these riots to occur. We look at the system that allowed for the, the imposition of a neoliberal consensus since the, since the time of Thatcher and Reagan um, that has put people of color, put uh, our brothers and sisters of color uh, down systemically and look at in the income inequality, which has grown since then. As I said, this isn't a case necessarily just about the death of, of George Floyd. This is a referendum on the system itself. Right. This is a referendum on the system that allows such gross income inequality, a system that per persists to legal systems, to policing systems, to income systems, to wealth systems. It's more than just the death of George Floyd. This is the straw that broke the camel's back. So I understand that perspective of letting it play out because there is also the perspective and I don't necessarily subscribe to this. I'm not sure what I subscribe to yet on this particular statement, but if you're a cop, it's almost that you're complicit in the system that allows for this injustice. But right. then the same argument can be applied. So there's medical malpractices. So every doctor, it's a doctor is complicit in the system that allows for medical malpractice. So I'm not sure because that's a slippery slope argument. Yeah, but then yeah. I also look at it from what you're saying about sending in the National Guard. I understand the necessity of doing that. Mm -hmm. But if you are protesting, right, and there's the great example of the 75-year-old man yesterday. The 75-year-old man in Buffalo is yeah. walking down the street, goes in front of the National Guard, it's past curfew, granted. But he's pushed over and starts bleeding out in the middle of the street. Cops, National Guard walk right past him. That right there, and he was a white man. It's not even that he was a person of color. It's not even that he was black. Yeah. Um, we look at that and we say, that is an unjust system. That's a system that punishes protest. Uh, when you send in the National Guard, you are, in fact, inhibiting protesters out of fear. You're, you're making them fear for their lives. You're making them, uh, right. when you have these police officers and National Guard destroying milk, destroying water. Um, I, so I understand it from both perspectives. And frankly, I'm not really sure where I land on this particular case. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a very, like you said, slippery slope and unknown waters where we are right now. Um, one thing before we move on to another question, um, I have a few uh, little details that I, well, this, well, the question I'm about, I'm about to ask a, about sorry deals with uh the riots and it's um a big thing that has been brought up during these riots it's a uh, black lives matter movement of course uh, i agree with it uh so do many people if not most in america uh but there is a um census amongst republicans and amongst uh some moderates uh that well amongst all people in black lives matter that they all are fighting partly white supremacy now, in Republicans' viewpoints and in, moder in some moderate viewpoints, white supremacy doesn't exist in the sense that if you look statistically, uh, minorities have a better chance of getting into college, a uh, better chance of getting a job, better chance of, quote unquote, moving up the corporate ladder of America. So my question to you is, how is, um, how, how is white supremacy still existent today? Well... To those people that are making those arguments, I know you just said it's not necessarily you who is making this yeah. argument. It's and more so are, are the radical Republicans. Um, yeah. I want to dispel that notion. Uh, frankly, they're just incorrect. They're wrong. Okay. Um, they're wrong on the basis that 
after like, let's think about it like this, right? Let's say you had a 100 yard dash, right? Okay. And in this example, you have a person of color, a black and a black man and a white man, right? Mm-hmm. And in this example, um, if you answer a question correctly, you get to move up three yards. Now these two people are of the same athletic uh, capability. So it should under normal circumstances be a fair race, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you have them start at the starting yard line and uh, you ask them questions. And for every answer that they say yes to, they get to move up three spaces or three, uh, three feet. So one yard. First question you ask them is, have you ever had to worry about not having food on the table? If they say yes, they get to move up three spaces. Have you ever not had to worry about not paying your cell phone bill? Move up three spaces. Have you ever not had to worry? Is, are, are your family, is your family still married? Move up three spaces. And you get the general trend behind that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it just so happens that the, the black man is going to have to start at the, one, at the, at the zero yard line. And, and the white man is particularly going to be far, far ahead and easily win that race. Um, and, and, that's a, and that's a metaphor for our, our system. Uh, um, it really is. We, we look at the, um, if you look at, so for example, you look at the Forbes 100, at the Forbes 400 list, right? Okay. In, yeah. in the top 400 uh, companies in, 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 in this country, 100 of them, right? Let's look at the top 100 first. 100 of the top CEOs in the country, um, less than a quarter of them are female, right? Okay. Expand that, less than 6% are people of color. Okay. Really, if we're if we're saying that it should be people of color representative of how many uh, people are in the country, it would be well over twenty five percent are people of color. But it's relegated to six okay. percent. All right, so, that, that makes sense. It's an argument, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, it, so yeah, you understand. Yeah. Yes, it, it makes sense. Uh, so with uh, that being said, um, we just talked about the Black Lives Matter movement. And as an overall, uh, Donald Trump, uh, the last thing before we move on, Donald Trump has enforced, um, you brought up how he was take going to that photo op with the Bible. Now, of course, many people like yourself, uh, par- partially me, uh, agree with um, that, you know, he overreacted, you know, this, this military movement, uh, when they began pushing back and shooting rubber bullets in the background of, um, the picture just to get Trump, uh, to take a photo in front of a church with a Bible is a bit overzest. Uh, my question to you is, uh, and this particular, uh, this also corresponds with, um, that, uh, man, 75 year old man who's pushed over and then bled out on the street. Um, my question to you is, do you think it's appropriate then for the National Guards, whose duty is to make sure the riot gets away from the President of the United States, do you think that they were doing what they were supposed to do? And then I suppose my backup question would be, do you think it w- Donald Trump should have even gone to that church and uh, went there in the first place? Well, you know, I, I first want to address this, the last question, because I think that's a, a particularly interesting question. We know Donald Trump's not a particularly religious person. Yeah. So... That in of itself is a complete photo op opportunity. He, he's not a practicing Christian. And he, he said that before. So yeah. if Mike Pence went, that would be a different story. 
But we know for a fact that Donald Trump is not in particular a religious, a religious person. You look at polls, the majority right. of the country does not believe him to be. Even evangelicals, the strongest base, don't believe him to be. So that's, mm-hmm. that addresses the, the, the last question. As for the first question, as I previously like alluded to, uh, I don't necessarily believe that this was the best course of action. Um, okay. Yeah, I just, I really don't. I, I don't, I can't wrap my mind around shooting rubber bullets at protesters so you can get a pretty picture in front of a church. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah. All right. So with that being said, uh, we're going to transition to our last uh, question before our uh, break. And it is about dur- during this time when we have these riots and all of this, you know, crazy stuff going on, we have a hurricane now wonder appearing uh, on the South of America wonderful timing um uh we're in the middle of the coronavirus a wonderful pandemic so how do you believe trump is handling the coronavirus situation and uh i don't know if you listened to my last episode political rant part one if any of my listeners haven't listened to it check it out but uh, in it i talked about uh a bill that nancy pelosi wanted to pass talking about another three trillion dollars towards small businesses so on and so so on uh, but with it included uh, plus $600 on the employment checks that are current, she wanted to extend that another couple of months. So, and it didn't pass. Do you think that was a smart move for the government not to pass this bill? Or do you think it was uh, necessary for this bill to be passed? So this is a, this is a loaded question. So right. I, I'm going to break it down a little bit. Yeah. Um, let me address the $600 thing first. Um, yep. Well, actually, uh, let me just make this statement. I made it earlier. The stock market is not indicative of how well we are doing as a country, of how well the finances of the average American are. So when we currently have a 27,000-point uh, Dow Jones industrial average that as of today, uh, June 4th, I believe it is, um, that is not indicative of the of the nearly 30-something million Americans that are now out of a job, out of the millions upon millions of Americans that have gone furloughed, of the J.C. Pennies that currently said that they're going to be closing all their stores, of the Nordstrom's doing the same thing, of the AMC's particularly thinking about doing the same thing. That's not indicative of how the average worker is doing. The average worker currently has economic angst. They are out of a job. They're not getting constant meal. Uh, funding. It is likely that we are in the midst of a depression greater than the Great Depression or equal to the Great Depression. Okay. So when Nancy Pelosi goes ahead and, and argues for that $600 extension per, per, uh, per paycheck, that in, that in of itself is almost not enough. And the reason I say that's not enough is because she needs to take it a step further and implement UBI, uh, universal basic income. Mm -hmm. Now, I understand that these unemployment workers are not working, but that in of itself is not their fault. And it's likely at the second that jobs do open, we are not going to be in the same state of the government was when we had the Great Depression. FDR went ahead and instituted infrastructure projects. Instead, what we're likely to do is we're likely to bail out industry, not workers. We're likely not to do infrastructure projects, which, by the way, our, our United States economy, our United States infrastructure gets a grade of D minus, D or D plus by the Civil Corps of Engineers. Um, which is a terrible, horrible grade, uh, considering we're the wealthiest country on the face of the earth. Um, So how can we improve it? 
well, we do infrastructure projects. We give our people universal basic income, a federal jobs guarantee program. So I disagree with the notion of, of tacking on $600 per unemployment paycheck. Let's give $600 or more to every single American. Don't means test it. Don't make sure like the last stimulus check where you have a $1,200 check. No, give it to every single American. Make sure that they are financially stable because it's very likely after this pandemic is over, even more people are going to be out of jobs because they are unable to sustain uh, giving jobs back after not after being closed for so long. Um, and, and as for um, you know small business and things like that, the, the definition of small business must be redefined. It, it has to be redefined because if you look to the last bill uh, back in March, the CARES Act, I believe it was, you have a five hundred billion dollar fund for small businesses. But Daniel, can you, I want to tell, I don't know if you know this, is Ruth Chris the steakhouse, the franchise, the, is that, is, is that a small business? I wouldn't consider so. Yeah, I wouldn't think it was either. Yeah. Is uh, Shakestack, is uh, Shakes, uh, whatever it's called, the, the, the chain in California, the burger chain in California, is that a um, small business? No, personally, when I, what I define a small business is business that has, it's, it's not a chain, it's like a family owns something yeah. that's not there. I agree, yeah. but the federal government doesn't think that. They define small yeah. business as employee of a, of a single location that has 500 employees or less. Mm-hmm. That's ridiculous. That hurts the mom and pop shops because that's allowing the same fund for small businesses, in quotes, to have 500 employees or less per location and the one that has three. Now, here's, uh, here's my uh, counter to that would be. Um, clearly, you know, that... that is uh, it hurts the small mom and pop shops, uh, as we call them, but uh, wouldn't it hurt the American economy more if those chain restaurants did eventually, uh, and those chain brands uh, go out of business because those mom and pop shops do contribute to the common economy, no, no one's saying that they don't. Uh, but don't you believe that while that's true, keeping the chain with, of course, like 500 employees though, uh, is considerably smaller than a like Amazon is and considerably bigger than a mom and pop shop is still, you know, good for the federal government to keep that there to ensure financial security. So I, I think I need to address that in three particular points. Uh, okay. The first point being that, yes, those chain restaurants are very important. In fact, they should be able to get a different fund, different from the one allowing for small businesses, mom and pop shops, the one with 20 or less employees. So Mm -hmm. that's step number one. But step number two, let's look back for a second, right? You look at a particular McDonald's, which is allowed to take from that particular fund because they have 500 employees or less per location, right? Mm -hmm. The CEO of McDonald's is walking away with millions upon millions, if not billions of dollars a year. Yeah. And employees are being let go. And, empl- and they don't, and they need to take from that fund. That's ridiculous to me. That if he's walking with billions of dollars a year, if if the the CEOs of these restaurants are walking away with millions upon millions of dollars a year, and they're taking from this fund, no, you're millionaires. You can take a pay cut. And um, and to the and to the last point, this is a surprising statistic, but ninety nine point seven percent of all of all economic activity in this country. It's propped up by the Obamacare definition of a small business. The Obamacare definition of small business is 100 employees or less per location. So if let's say we were just not to give uh, funding to uh, uh, 
places of less than of 101 employees or more, 99.7% of the, of the U.S. economy would still be intact. Right. Wow. Well, I mean, that, that, I mean, that, I definitely agree with you on parts of uh, that, that argument and definitely uh, with the part of, you know, the two separate fundings with, uh, for the chains and for the mom and pop shops. I absolutely agree with you on that. Uh, one thing that I do want to go back to is when you talked about $600, uh, were you saying that after the coronavirus, you just want to, not, not part of the unemployment checks, but you wanted to just give the $600 to every single family? This just is after Corona? Yeah, or, or are you still talking about during? So I'm, when, when I said the $600 or more, uh, I was referring yeah. to particularly during the coronavirus pandemic mm-hmm. and, until the pandemic is over and then transition right. to a federal jobs guarantee program. Um, okay. I'm not sure where I fall on the issue of a UBI system after coronavirus, but I do know in the right. interim, we do need that because we're going to have families that struggle. Okay. Do you, you think that, that we should have like a certain, you know, point, uh, list of, uh, you know, w- which families should be able to get this and which families don't. What for the universal basic income? Yes. Well, no, because I believe it should be universal. The problem with the with the stimulus checks was that right. they took so long to come out. I mean, there there are families that still haven't received them, and this and this mm-hmm. bill was passed on March twenty seventh. It is now June fourth yeah. on the day of recording. Um, mm-hmm. t- that's absurd. I understand that we, we've been we've been tarred with the definition of an inefficient government. But it's inefficient because you have to meet all these standards and all these requirements in order to even get the check. Uh, that's mm-hmm. the reason it took so long to come out. It's, it has partially to do with the fact that the president wanted to sign his name on it. That's a, that's a whole different story entirely. Mm-hmm. But it has to do with the fact that you have to be means testing this. That you, and I disagree with the, the fact that means testing it. We need to get this money out as fast as we can to the people who need it the most. Mm-hmm. No, I absolutely agree. Uh, so with that being said, um, j- just a specific question. Do you believe, uh, one one thing that I do uh, want to point out um, that did have to deal with the Nancy Pelosi bill uh, that, did, uh, that didn't pass was that in there, a uh, politician scheme is to create a big bill and then create many little subsections under it uh, that are literally miniature bills. So one uh, quote unquote miniature bills, I guess you can call it, was that Nancy Pelosi wanted to create a system in which uh, the unregistered voters, uh, people who are unregistered could still vote, meaning undocumented immigrants um, and et cetera. Do you believe that undocumented immigrants should be able to vote in our presidential elections or not? Uh, no. Or just I, people I don't, who are unregistered, okay. Yeah, I don't believe that people that are um, illegal immigrants or immigrants in general uh, that have not, um, are not citizens, should be allowed to vote in our elections. But particularly what I mean, what I think Nancy Pelosi meant, or maybe what you meant in this thing, uh, is particularly that Nancy Pelosi, uh, when, when she says unregistered voters, there's a registration process. And, and the number one reason people don't vote when you poll them is because they're not registered to vote. They'll right. go to the voting agency. They'll go to the voting booth and be told, oh, sorry, you did not register to vote. And that's the case with a lot of people. That's the number one reason people don't vote. So, I think that we should have an automatic registration system, um, but it, that would be much better. Yeah, it, but it would. It, I, I think it, I don't necessarily think that she was intending for illegal immigrants to vote. Mm-hmm. Well, no, no. Uh, in the bill, it was talking about. Uh, for, from what I read, I, I might be mistaken, but in the bill, it was talking about how you you don't have to register 
to vote, which would allow for undocumented immigrants to vote because I mean, you just wouldn't have to register. But so, okay. So, so my uh, question, I, I guess, to you is you, you still, and I absolutely agree with the idea of automatic registration. That would be a, a wonderful thing to have in America, but you still believe only citizens of the United States should, and only citizens of the United States should be able to vote. Yes. Okay. Uh, let me just put a quick caveat. I, I agree. I agree. Just saying. <laughs> yeah. Let me just go ahead and put a quick caveat because in primaries, uh, there are abroad voters. So people from different parts of Europe, parts of different all over the world can cast their votes in presidential primaries. Um, right. So that is a thing that does exist. They do have to be citizens though of the United States, I believe, or at least have dual citizenship. Uh, but yeah, that is, that is a thing that does exist. Okay. So in the L and, and about the bill, are you happy that it didn't pass or do you feel that it should have passed? Um, you know, I am not one of those people that believe in... Um, let me, let me rephrase. The bill was a decent bill. It didn't go far enough. Um, mm -hmm. it, it should have had a universal, a temporary UBI system. It should have had a federal jobs guarantee. Um, it should have, it should have done a variety of different things, but ultimately it failed in those respects. So uh, I'm, ha I'm not happy it didn't pass. It, it was a step in the right direction uh, and not having it pass was uh allowing the status quo to take a stranglehold over a situation. Okay. So uh, in the end, I suppose one way we could top uh, this off uh, before we go into our uh, break is um, we, we just talked about this bill and everything, but um, I guess the main person, the elephant in the room, I guess you can call him is uh, Donald Trump. And he, uh, one thing that has been a huge uh, debate across Democrats, Republicans, conservatives, liberals, including moderates, is, is Trump handling the coronavirus good? What could, have, what could he have done, uh, you know, to prevent, you know, the situation from getting worse or, you know, help it get better? So personally, how, how do you think Donald Trump is handling uh, the coronavirus situation today? <laughs> you know, this is going to sound, you know, just like um, a continuation of what, what I've been saying. And I, and I feel bad that I can offer no new criticism, but no, no, no. Sorry. it's, it, he's not doing a good job. He, he's failed in almost nearly every respect. I, this is in my opinion, this is the polling of the American people. Every poll minus the governor, I believe West Virginia, has a better approval rating than the president of the United States on the issue of handling COVID-19. Mm -hmm. The American people understand that he's not doing a good job. We, yes, we have done the most amount of tests in the world, but that's because we have the most number of cases in the world. Yeah. We are not doing a good job handling this. He called it a democratic hoax when, when it was a serious real threat that his advisors were telling him about. That's absurd. That's rank partisanship. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not a democratic hoax. It, it was, it's a real thing that's affecting millions of people. Uh, there's estimates saying 16 million Americans have been affected by this as of like a week ago. There's estimates saying that, uh, that there's well, not estimates. There's 105,000 people that have died because of this. Um, right. There's 40, nearly 40 million un, uh, unemployed. Uh, millions uninsured uh, under the Trump administration, not because of Corona, but because of different things now being heavily impacted by Corona. 
it, he's not done a good job on this. And it, it, it is such a well, it's a, such a good argument for why he should not be reelected. Yes, I was about to say that if, if he will not be reelected, this is definitely one of the uh, main points that they will be bringing up, how uh, bad he has been dealing with the coronavirus situation. Uh, one thing uh, right before we go into our break, uh, I wanted to talk to you about is that in the beginning, before this pandemic, he took $10 billion away from the CDC. Now, some people argue, some people argue that the CDC, um, if he kept the $10 billion in the CDC, you know, the United States would be, you know, more prepared. Uh, but a very popular uh, argument to that would be that, uh, counter to that, would be that at the time, we don't know when a pandemic is going to strike. And the CDC had this $10 billion uh, budget you know, cut uh, for the coronavirus. So my question to you is, do you think that Donald Trump should have acted fast by giving the money back to the CDC? Or do you think that Donald Trump was you know, too relaxed and you know, didn't really give it that much thought and should have just straight away given it uh, back to CDC? Well, first of all, I don't believe it's within his power to um, go ahead and give power and give money back to the CDC. Uh, that's up to the okay. uh, authorization of the Congress. I could be mistaken because I'm sure there is some clause that Congress has abdicated that power away to Congress, to the president, just okay. like they have everything else. Um, yes, they take. They love taking away power. Yeah. Yeah. So it very well could have done that, but. Mm-hmm. You know, it goes deeper than that, because let's say in this hypothetical universe that the CDC, that Trump never cut the funding, right? Mm -hmm. Let's say in this hypothetical universe. This administration has proven time and time again to be one of the most incompetent administrations in U.S. US history. Okay. And I understand that Fauci and other members of the health department have not only worked under the Trump administration, but for the Obama administration, for the uh, Fauci's case, I understand he's not the head of the CDC, but he's the head of the subset of the CDC, I believe it's the National Health Institute, Uh, infectious disease control, rather, I don't know, something like that. Um, He's been there since the Reagan administration. So these people are long lasting bureaucrats. And it's, and it's such a, they, Trump understood this from the beginning, or at least he was told from the beginning about the terrible ramifications this virus could have. They mm-hmm. saw the rampage it did in Italy. They saw the rampage it did in uh, South Korea. They saw the rampage right. it did in China. Right. He didn't act. He went golfing. He called the hoax. He had rallies. He mm-hmm. made light of it. And that was incorrect. That was something that shouldn't have been done, and he did it anyway. And uh, I, even if he had the money, I doubt things would have been different because it's an incompetent uh, administration. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, I said this would be the last question, but I do have just one follow-up question. We just talked about President Donald Trump, but he appointed his vice president as in charge of dealing with the coronavirus uh, a pandemic. So many people say that it's Trump's fault that he's not handling it right. But w- wouldn't you draw your attention to uh, Vice President uh, Mike Pence? And I suppose my question to you would then would be, how do you think he handled it? So well, when, when I talk know, about the... So well. What? Uh, I, I said, do you think Mike Pence is uh, dealing well or not so well with the uh, pandemic? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you guess my answer. Uh, but my, my, uh, I think I might know what it is. 
But my, my answer remains that you, you have Mike Pence who was in charge and there was an HIV outbreak under his gubernatorial leadership. And uh, yeah. he didn't care about it. He, he literally didn't do a single thing about it. So appointing him to be in charge of this coronavirus task force is an absurd notion because he has a legacy of not doing anything with highly infectious diseases. He, he, he literally, there are moments of him literally saying, praying this thing will go away. No, Mike, th- it goes further than uh, pray, prayer. It goes further than going to church. It takes mm-hmm. science. And, and I'm sorry that, that your religion doesn't have that. But, um, you know, when, when we talk about uh, deflecting blame, that's another thing this, this administration has been phenomenal at, def- deflecting blame from one yeah. person to the other. You know, there's the famous Truman or Eisenhower quote, that, or FDR quote, that the, the buck stops here. No, with Trump, the buck stopped a few stores down in a different office. Yeah. Um, you know, it, um, it, it's, it, it's just a, it, it, this is a, another prime example of just how the Trump administration works. <laughs> yeah. And that many, again, as I said before, and you said yourself that, if Trump does lose the upcoming election, uh, this might be the case. So uh, with that being said, um, we're going to jump into a little break. Uh, we'd like to thank our listeners for doing it, and we will get back to you after the break. Go back in. Hello, and welcome back to What Do We Have Here? I hope you enjoyed your little break, but um, we're ready, and we're back. And we are going to continue. So uh, we just covered uh, covered Donald Trump. So let's talk about Biden. Uh, so Paul, Joe Biden hat was a senator, and so as a senator, you have to firm for uh, first and foremost uh, care about the needs of the people who elected you. Um, so do you think he did a good or bad job doing that? And would you consider him as a good embodiment uh, for the Demo- Democratic Party at the time when he's senator? When he was a senator of, or of now? Uh, as a senator. Uh, we're we're going to get into now a little later. But okay. Because we just, yeah, we're, we're going to summarize senator first. <laughs> All right. So it, it depends because I largely disagree with him uh, in terms of his politics. Uh, I don't right. think he's a good representation of the Democratic Party today or my ideology. And for those of you who don't know, uh, clearly haven't listened to the first half, I'm very liberal. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So I don't, I truly don't believe him to be the best representation of what the Democratic Party is. Uh, But in terms of what the Democratic Party was, you know, he's still not the best um, interpretation because he was able to uh, compromise with segregationists. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he, he advocated, uh, busing discrimination uh he advocated the crime bill sure these might have been popular bills and legislation at the time but they have sure aged poorly right no i, I mean again that that makes sense uh he was very the reason i talked about it is because uh one thing as a, one thing that would hurt trump would be the coronavirus one thing that would hurt biden is his uh time uh, which is um, why I brought that up. So um, as of now, I suppose he has, in a sense, leaned uh, more towards the Democratic side. And the reason why I say that is that he created something as a senator, like wanted to uh, get rid of the Social Security, um, uh, get rid of Social Security, what welfare checks in general, uh, which is something that uh, Democrats advocate for, that they want uh, welfare checks to stay. 
Uh, but now he has uh, somewhat gone back uh, on some things that he has said in uh, as time as a senator. So do you think that he is now more of a representation of the Democratic Party, or do you think he's still the same as he was back as a senator? Look, I'll be honest. I, I don't think that he is a representation of the Democratic Party today. Uh, okay. He's a representation of the old Democratic Party, of the mm-hmm. old guard. You know, with the emerging AOC brand of the, the emerging Bernie, uh, Bernie, uh, Bernie Democrats and Ilhan Omar and um, uh, Yana Presley and, you know, and all these mm-hmm. great figures on the left and Nina Turner and Ro Khanna. Uh, there, there's so many great leftists and it's Biden is not representative of them. He mm-hmm. He's still in favor of cutting uh, social security. I, and this mm-hmm. was during the Obama administration. He vows behind yeah. closed doors to do that. I, I, I don't believe that he, he be- actually believes in modern monetary theory. I don't believe that he believes in Keynesian economics. Um, I believe that he is a, is a Bill Clinton Democrat, a, a triangulationist. Um, yeah. So uh, it's sad because that's likely the, 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 the choice that the Democrats are going to be running with, but it's uh so it's a sad reality. Yeah. Uh, now, since you did bring up the Obama administration and how he was talking about clo- uh, in closed doors about removing social security checks, um, I actually, I believe it's fair since while we're on the top of Biden, I think it's fair that we examine the president who he was serving and what that president did, because after all, if Joe Biden did disagree with Obama, then he could have said something because in the past, vice presidents have said something against their president. So how do you feel about the Obama's eight years in the, in the office? And the reason why I bring this up is because, uh, many people might say that, um, Obama was great, but many of those who did vote for Obama uh, consider it as uh, something that a dark, a dark, quote unquote, dark age. It wasn't clearly a dark age, but something that bad happened to America. And the reason why I say this is that there were uh, two uh, main things that, while I was doing my research, uh, were brought up. The first one is that the embassy shootings that were uh, that that happened when uh, the previous uh, terrorist organization, Al-Qaeda, uh, went into an embassy and shot everyone, and Obama didn't do anything as a reaction to it. And how Obama actually created the uh, cages that Trump has criticized for, for the undocumented citizens. And those are the two big main factors. So my question to you, the eight years in uh, office, do you think Obama did you know, great? And do you think Biden uh, did good supporting him? So let me address the last question first. Um, yes, it is. It could actually be argued that Biden, in, in some respect, pushed Obama to the left. And mm-hmm. Obama was the first president to endorse gay marriage. And it is reported that that was largely due to Joe Biden's pushing him to do that. It was actually a a week before the Obama administration actually firmly came out in support of gay marriage across the country and the repeal of DOMA. That Biden said on live TV that he is in favor of gay marriage, that he believes that anyone should be able to marry whoever they want uh, between two consenting adults. Um, So, you know, the Obama administration had to put out a me- message later and, and they came out in support of uh, gay marriage. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. So um, in, in that respect, uh, it, the administration was pushed to the left. Mm-hmm. Um, but to answer your other question as a retrospective on the Obama administration, but, uh, in simplest terms, this may seem like a very odd thing to say, but it's more of the same. And it's more of the same because you had, a, a, really beginning with the, the Reagan administration, uh, this implementation of neoliberalism that swept the, the world and, and the international politics. Okay. Um, neoliberalism is this advocation that free market policy is the way to go. It's the best thing ever. And we should forcefully implement it throughout the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was continued up until uh, the Trump administration. This is even policies implemented by some of the Trump administration. Right. Um, you know, it, so it's a disgusting policy um, because free trade sometimes doesn't work. I hate to say it, the capitalism yeah. sometimes is not the end all be all. Um, yeah. But um, I, the Obama administration, I. Sounds arbitrary, partially because it is, because I can talk for hours about this on end. But yes, <laughs> it's um, I would I would give them like a C. <laughs> I know it C, sounds arbitrary. Good, good old I, C. No, no, I know it, it sounds arbitrary, yeah. but um, no, no, absolutely. Uh, now, do you think uh, one thing that Biden has been pushing during uh, his uh, rallies is that, and, and during his debates, and something that I laugh at each time I watched his debates was like under Obama's administration, dot, dot, dot. So he keeps on bringing that he was part of the Obama administration and how this is a forefront, which is why I was bringing up the previous question. So do really you quickly. think Biden, yeah, yeah. Did you know that he was part of the Obama administration? Oh, no, no, I didn't know quite yet. No, All right, no. now, now you I do, because he told now, me Now I do, times. yes. Yeah, he did, he, he reminded me. I forgot, but he reminded me. So in the end, you know, he, you say that he doesn't embody the Democratic Party uh, completely. And, you know, I would agree. Do uh, you think he embodies the uh, Obama administration? Because every single time, debate, rally, he talks about these great things that he did in the Obama administration. And yet, you know, many people, including you know myself, say that he does not represent uh, what the Obama administration was. So do you agree or uh, disagree and why? Uh, yes, I, I have to agree on that. Um, Obama, okay. So I'm going to use Obamacare as, as the prime example. Mm-hmm. You know, particularly with Obamacare, you have the you have this uh, individual mandate system that was dismantled by Trump. But Obama himself said, I believe, in 2015, that Obamacare was the jumping off point. It wasn't the end all be all. It wasn't the ultimate final destiny policy of well, whatever the healthcare policy in the United States should be. It was the jumping off point, starting point. And Biden, in that way, wants to continue that legacy. He doesn't want to go ahead and undermine the whole Obamacare and implement a Medicare for all system. He wants to implement, he wants to expand it, implement a public option. Um, you know, you, you look at, um, you know, Obama's uh, foreign policy, right? Obama, yeah. Obama's foreign policy was imperialist, so like Trump's and the Bushes. And, um, you know, in, in Obama's last year in office, he sent 29,000 uh, airstrikes in, in 2016 alone. Yeah. Um, yes, absolutely. You know, yeah. Biden wants to continue that reign of uh, foreign policy warfare. Mm-hmm. So I, I do believe that they're largely the same. And as I said, like the neoliberal strand of the Democratic Party is still president and still precedent, uh, like the like the Clintons that ran in 2016, um, and, and like all these uh, more centrist uh, Democrats. Right. 
Right, absolutely. Uh, one thing that you were talking about, foreign policy, and um, I, I did bring this up in the question, uh, you, you just said that he embodies the Obama administration. And one thing that I did bring up in my question, I'd like to bring it up again, is that during the Obama administration, uh, Al-Qaeda went in, killed an entire embassy, and Obama did nothing. Uh, Obama created the case that Trump is now criticized for, and mind you, uh, he has made life better in uh, those uh, prison, ca uh, prison camps, I guess you can call them, or the detention areas would be a more fitting uh, name that undocumented immigrants uh, go for. So how do you, do, do you believe that Joe Biden is going to uh, do something that Obama hasn't? Because Obama, in the face of Al-Qaeda, when they went in and killed everyone in the embassy, he did nothing. He created the cages that undocumented immigrants live in. Do you think uh, um, Biden is going to continue that trend, or do you think he's going to stand up for uh, what's right in America and go go his own route? You know, we we can play that game of like um, Obama did this, so Biden's going to follow in his footsteps. But ultimately, I feel like that is up yeah. to the actual president of the United States. Um, yes, yeah, so Obama uh, and Biden might be ideologically similar, but they, they're also uh, s seemingly Biden actually seems to be more hawkish than Obama. You know, Obama mm -hmm. pledged to remove some troops out of the Middle Eastern region, but ultimately didn't. Uh, Biden, you know, has advocated either the expansion or a status quo. Um, so it's, it's likely that we have a more hawkish, hawkish administration in, in comparison to the Obama administration, but less hawkish than the Trump administration. Right. Absolutely. So, um, uh, one thing that you did say, uh, about, um, uh, Joe Biden was, uh, Medicare for all, uh, what, one topic that, you know, surrounds Joe Biden and, well, I mean, of course, Bernie Sanders, but since Joe Biden is the presumptive nominee, unfortunately. Uh, Medicare for all, Obamacare, <laughs> Medicare for all, unfortunately for the Democratic Party, yes. Uh, uh, for, but as I was saying, Obamacare, Medicare for all. So how do you feel about Joe Biden and his health care plan? Because um, conservatives don't really uh, promote the idea of a national health care plan while uh, Democrats and liberals do. And Biden's stands out. So how do you feel about his health care plan? So I'm going to lay you down with this one statistic, right? And I'm a firm believer that um, every life is an important life. And uh, in 2009 or 2010, the Harvard Gazette put out a study that said that anywhere from 32 to 45,000 of our fellow Americans, uh, unfortunately, they die every year because they don't have health insurance. Right. Now, these are preventable deaths. These are deaths that don't have to occur. Um, in every other country, you go to Japan, it's zero. The UK, it's, it's zero. Uh, France, it's zero. Ireland, zero. All these other developed nations that have healthcare systems uh, are, are zero. Yet ours is 32 to 45,000 people that die every year. Under the Trump administration, with the repeal of the individual mandate, that jumped to 68,000 deaths. Yeah in one year because of the lack of health insurance, an avoidable death. And any death that can be avoidable to me is, is, uh, is worth taking. Even if it were to, for some reason, increase the cost in, in, our, in our budget and, and deficit and debt, it, it's a human life and, and life is irreplaceable. And uh, so I look at Joe Biden's plan 
And I, I look at it and see the unfortunate reality that it leaves 3% of the American population uninsured. Now, 3% yeah. might sound like a small number, but that's 10 million of our fellow Americans. Yeah. 10 million that can be subject to die every year. I would just like to uh, quickly interrupt uh, qu uh, just a quick thing that you did say. Uh, 3% might be a small amount. And I really do uh, like that you said that because it has been, uh, that, that was going to be one of my questions uh, that you're about to answer. Uh, the 3% uh, that, that only covers 3%, I was going to ask, you know, that, that seems like a small number. And I'm really happy that you said that's 10 million people because something that people don't understand is that 3% is still a lot of our country. And I'm just, uh, I, I was just saying that I'm really happy that you said that because that is one point that I would like to address. Yeah, it's, it's you know, it was, that's an overlooked point that it's 3%. That's 10 million of our fellow Americans yes. that can live their lives. And, and that's a death that's unavoidable. Even if it's one death, mm -hmm. I'm willing to raise that budget. I'm willing to raise okay. that debt and deficit to avoid the death of one man in this country because it's a death that's avoidable. Um, so when Joe Biden goes out there and he trots out a plan for the expansion of Obamacare, it's not a Medicare for all plan. Um, and Medicare for all is realistically the only way to universalize healthcare. Um, it, it's, it's embarrassing that the Democratic Party is complicit in the deaths of 68 to 42 to 32, even one American that dies every year because they don't have health insurance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it is unfortunate, but I mean, under each administration, the first half, there's a saying, the first half is to bury the hatchet of what the previous administration had. And the second half is to create some other stuff that the next will bury. But um, uh, we, you talked about um, uh, healthcare and you know how present it is. Uh, one thing that is, again, a controversy is I was talking about now we have these riots, Black Lives Matter everywhere. And one thing that Biden recently has said is that, and I quote, if you don't know who you're voting for in the 2020 election, then you ain't black. Uh, now, if, if he is going to lose the election and uh, he's not going to get the black vote, this is definitely uh, a score for the Trump administration. So my question to you is, what do you think about that? Does that sound, I mean, our president as of himself doesn't sound presidential ever, but that, that's, I, I think, what made him president because he doesn't give a damn what, what comes out of his mouth. Uh, Biden is a person who likes to keep his political image, you know, out there and politically correct. And this thing hurts him. So in my, in my, and since the overall topic is who's going to win the overall 2020 election, uh, Donald Trump or the presumptive candidate, uh, uh, Joe Biden, uh, the, the quote, if you don't know who you're voting for in the 2020 election, uh, then you ain't black. What do you think of that quote? Well, I'm going to let you know something. This is what I, what I think. The other, a few months ago, Kanye West was in the Oval Office. And right. I, I now I disagree politically with, with Kanye West. There, there, in fact, there, there may be uh, something wrong with, with, with him, a uh, mental, uh, mental issue or whatever you want to call it. And um, he, there's one thing that he said that was, it's, it's indicative of the Democratic group think that, you know, he cannot be enslaved in, into the minds that the Democrats are going to represent people of color and blacks. And that's true. 
you know, sure, do I necessarily happen to believe that the Democratic Party has fought for the new civil rights movement? Yes. Do I believe the Democratic Party is trying to do more than the Republican Party to help the advancement of African Americans and people of color in this country? Yes. Do I believe that the Republican Party tends to be more um, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, and, and individualism at its finest? Yes. And that's a system in, that it systemically uh, puts uh, people of color down because of systemic uh, racism and stomach bigotry and, and all of that. But I, I, that quote from Biden is, is troubling because you know, and I think it's obvious. You go back and you watch a 2008 debate against um, uh, against Sarah Palin, and you watch a 2012 debate against um, Paul Ryan. It is clear that there is some sort of cognitive decline that exists within Joe Biden, and it, that example in and of itself is just a prime. It, it's a problem, and this is an example of it leaking um stuff like that should not be said voters should make the choice based on your policy not based on how you tell them to vote joe you need to earn votes don't expect votes absolutely now of course he later on apologized for what he said but i i absolutely agree you don't expect votes you have to earn them uh so i think that we are now uh, closing up. We are going to wrap up. Uh, but before we do, I do have two questions. So the polls uh, in, on national television and uh, Fox News, uh, mainly on MSNBC and CNN, those, uh, the, the left-wing uh, new, news sites, uh, say that Biden is more popular uh, than Trump. But we uh, at, what do we have here, studio, um, not studios, but podcast show, uh, we conducted our own uh, research on uh, this app called Upvote. Um, for all of you listeners who don't have it, I really do recommend it. We're creating our own group, and we will get into that next episode. But basically, the overall scheme is you ask a question, people vote on it, and uh, they see. So we asked the question, um, who's more popular? Who's most likely to win the presidential election? And 3,000 people voted on it. And it's, they say 58%, 58% say Trump will win, while 42 say Biden will win. So do you think Biden can win this election? And uh, if you don't, what do you think he has to do to you know, sway his way to the presidency? So I can easily go into my wallet right now <laughs> and I can take out a coin and flip it and that will tell you who will win the election. I don't know. Most likely how it's done. Yes. That we were actually throwing yeah. darts at a board this election. Um, yeah. No, but um, I, I really couldn't tell you. And if I did, I'd be a millionaire. Um, but what I can tell you is that polling is typically correct. Now, I attend Quinnipiac University. And for those of you that don't know, the Quinnipiac poll is one of the most highly respected polls in the country. And I attended a lecture done by the director of the, of the Institute, Doug Schwartz. Um, Doug Schwartz conducted a poll and he explained why the 2016 polling was so off. And for lack of better terms, they didn't expect young aged, so they were uneducated voters who were white. And um, so there were white uneducated voters who happened to be college aged, 
not college students, but college age, to go out and vote in droves. Now, in every other election historically, this is one of the groups that votes the least. So in this election, they've actually gone ahead and countered for that fact. They've weighed that group more, suspecting that that group is going to go out and vote for Trump even heavily, even more heavily in preparation. So these polls that we're seeing on uh, the, the media are likely correct this time around. Unless there's just another surprise demographic that's likely to, to vote Trump, although that 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 that's likely not the case because he's an incumbent. Um, yeah, so I I really don't know who's going to win. I want to say that Biden would win because it would be damage control. I'm not a fan of Biden, as you can probably tell. Um, but it's damage control. I'd rather. Uh, less damage be done than uh than to elect Donald Trump for a second term. All right. So uh, the last question of uh, today will be: um, as of right now, uh, well, well, before we actually get into it, uh, Biden has his turns, and as you said before, he'll have to flip a coin. You, you could say the ch- the chances of uh, a president, uh, one of them being elected, is to flip a coin. Uh, so what do you believe Biden could do to secure his victory? Okay, so this is a complicated question uh, because you can listen to the mainstream. And so in, in every election since uh, really Bill Clinton, what Democrats have done is they've campaigned on a leftist agenda in their primaries, right? So they'll campaign in, to the center of left, right? Mm-hmm. To the left of center, rather. And then during the yeah. general election, they'll run to the right. So it'll be more centrist, right? Right. But when you have this issue of Joe Biden, where he's having trouble maintaining his base, because his enthusiasm rates at 24%. And when you have Joe Biden, who, um, and that's less than Hillary Clinton's enthusiasm rate. And we all know how that went. Um, yes, we, we did. We sure so did. when you have a 24% enthusiasm rate among your own supporters and when you have a um and when and when your your policies are not exciting and, and they're and they're status quo well you got to attract voters and when you have a third of bernie sanders supporters saying that they're going to vote third party and 15 percent of bernie sanders supporters saying that they're going to vote for donald trump and a third of bernie sanders supporters make up the democratic yep. party if you can't maintain your base to win an election, you're going to lose the election. We've, we've yeah. seen this historically. So Biden really needs to make sure he maintains his base in order to win. Uh, he does this by vouching for Medicare for all, which he won't do because he said he'd veto it. Mm-hmm. You do this by saying that you would legalize marijuana, but no, instead he'll decriminalize it. You say this by going ahead saying you'll do uh, universal college, free college for all. No, instead, it's going to be means tested. It's going to be a two-year community college or in-state college. So he's not in line with the the, the upcoming, the rising Democratic Party, the youth and the millennials and Gen Z. He's not in line with them. He's in line with the – when he was a Democratic – when he was in the, uh, the, the new Democratic Party during the 60s and 70s, that's where his mind is. He's not in the mind of the young people. Absolutely. You know, that, that's, I, I think, one, one reason why Trump did win and one reason 
why the unexpected amount of people did vote for him is because one thing that Clinton did not do that he does Trump tweets 24 seven while Clinton, of course, she did have her fair share of shows for media. She didn't uh, have it as much compared to uh, Trump. Which yeah, I agree. Factors why he won. So when you say that, you know, Joe Biden uh, needs to maintain his, uh, his at, at least his floor plan, uh, his base of becoming, you know, building upon uh, so he can become president. I agree with you by saying that he needs to really work way to connecting to uh, Gen Z, because um, as of right now, Trump, from my stance, really has that in his ballpark uh, yeah. on his side of the court. Yeah, I, I on right. a, so it, so it tends to be, according to Doug Schwartz, who's again, the, the polling director of Quinnipiac. Um, it tends to be the uneducated white voters uh, that flock to Trump, the young, the, the uneducated college-aged white voters uh, who right. flock to Trump. So that yeah, that's the group that Biden needs to go after. Right. Uh, so uh, as of right now, I suppose the final question for today would be the question that I began with. As of right now, who do you want to win the 2020 election? And I know you said 50-50 shot, but viewpoint from right now, who do you think will win? Well, who do I think? Well, you asked me who I want to win. I want Bernie yeah. Sanders to win. But <laughs> right, <laughs> right. No, yes, but I understand. Is, uh, I understand what you meant. Role. Yeah, <laughs> I understand what you meant, though. Yeah. Um, if, if we compare everything that's going on, I would have to give the slight edge to Biden. Okay. And this is literally the slightest edge I can I can possibly give. And my rationale for that is if he campaigns correctly, it doesn't matter what Joe Biden did in 1994 with the crime bill. It doesn't matter that Joe Biden voted for the Iraq war. Trump has continued that, the Iraq war, and he has suspended habeas corpus. Right. Which has been done after 9-11, I think, right? It's been done three times in our nation's history. Yeah. The Civil War, 9-11, and now. Mm Mm-hmm. If we go ahead and, and look at the, the amount of deaths and destruction that COVID-19 has rampaged, not necessarily because of Trump, because Trump is not the virus, although he is a virus that persists in the White House. Um, That's a viewpoint. <laughs> yeah. we, 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 Joe Biden has a shot at winning. Um, although, and I will always maintain this view, um, Democrats are, are, are good at governing, right? Mm-hmm. Republicans are terrible at governing, but Democrats are terrible at campaigning. Republicans are phenomenal at it. Republicans can turn anything into the best thing since sliced bread. Democrats are the exact opposite. So it is a really a toss up, but I have to give the slight edge over to Biden if the Democrats can actually campaign well for once. Yeah. All right. So um, with that being said, unfortunately, we do have to wrap up. Thank you again, Paul. Do you want anything to say to our listeners before we finish up, whether it be about the election or just anything in general? Yes. Yeah, so would you mind if I plug really quick? Yes. Okay. So uh, guys, my name is again, Paul Capuzzo. Uh, I have a show on YouTube with the politics show. Uh, it airs Mondays and Fridays. Again, on Mondays, we, uh, we do analysis episodes. I cover whatever the news of the day is, a topic of the day. 
Um, and on Fridays, I interview politicians, I interview congressional candidates, uh, lawyers, and uh, educators, uh, professors, and um, fellows at research institutes. So uh, if you want to check that out, please visit uh, YouTube, and uh, it's the Politics Show on YouTube. And thank you for having me on the show. Right. I really appreciate uh, so it. No, no problem. You're welcome back here anytime. Uh, so, and as I said, thank you uh, very much for being with us on our show. For our listeners, make sure to follow our account on Insta, WDWHH16, and share our podcast. Also, we have a place where you can support us. People already have been supporting us, and we like to thank all of them. Uh, really soon, we're creating an event uh, called Debate Night, which is still in work, and uh, we're ready for that. But thank you very much for being us, and this does bring us uh, to the end of our political trilogy. But as always, I will see you in the next episode. Goodbye.